Hey everybody, welcome to Mouths of the Merrimack. I'm Captain Chris Velasquez here with Dandy O'Daddy. And today, guys, we're starting off uh, the season. I mean, we're pretty much the weekend away here. I got my first charters coming up uh, the end of May, beginning of April. And then we're a week or two away for some nice little fresh schoolies coming up the coast. Oh, I can't believe we're finally almost here. It's like crazy. It's turning into May and those schoolies will be here in no time. You know, when, when we went out fishing the other day, I made a comment like, man, it's like we never left going out haddock fishing but there's something about the first stripers that are just just something special you know uh, i mean there's nothing more fun than schoolie fishing first of all so you know especially you know when you try to make it a goal when you can catch a fish every cast <clears throat> it's a it's a blast <laughs> it, it really is it shakes off the cobwebs yeah. it's a it's you're getting in there you're getting it you're finding the pattern and like you never know when they're going to come exactly i mean i try to narrow it down every year i have some circles on my calendar when i think i'm going to get one Usually I'm within a couple days, but <laughs> the the thing is, you always got to be wary of the other people that are out there before you. Those retired people, like my friend Scott McGuire, who's joining us here today. How are you doing today, Scott? I I take offense to that. I'm not retired. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're not. You're not. Well, you and Pete, you guys are too thick Steve's. So. <laughs> so, guys, our guest today is Captain Scott McGuire from Summer Job Charters, really good friend of ours. Um, he's been on this river for a long time. Great fisherman. Has a lot of things, a lot of things to talk about. And uh, so, Scott, can you just give people a quick background on... Um, your business and when you started fishing here just real your boat business stuff things like that basically I moved into the area in 1980 uh, I have I honestly had never caught a striped bass when I moved here and I just did like everybody else and ground at it and ground at it and ground at it and did terrible and then I joined the Plum Island surf casters and learned a lot from those guys and then I got better and I have been chartering in the river since 1999 and it's uh, become an addiction. You are out there every day, you know, you just clients on yourself. It, it's just great seeing you out there. And um, you got a great little boat, your, your Parker. I love my Parker. I've had several boats, not nearly as many as Pete and maybe you, but, uh, <laughs> but my Parker is hopefully my, my final boat. I remember when I was looking at my Parker, when I got mine, uh, God, that was eight years ago now. So my first boat was a 21-foot Sea Hunt, and um, I was looking at the Parker. It was always the dream boat for up around here because it's just, for the type of fishing that we do, it checks off a lot of the boxes, right? And I just remember getting a little scared, just doing my due diligence, reading some reviews about the Parkers, and like all I heard about was, all oh, they pound, they pound, they pound, they pound. And I remember calling you, oh my God, it must have been like a high school teenage girl, man. I was calling you like every five seconds. I felt like, Scott, tell me about this thing. Do you like it? What don't you like? Blah, 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 blah. And you said something that's always stuck with me. You said, the boat can take more than I can. And I'll tell you something, ain't that the truth? I, I am not a hero. You know, I don't, I don't go out there to abuse myself anymore. I've, I've slowed down enough of that. But the boat is stable. It rides well. Does it go fast in four-foot seas? No, but I try not to do that anyway, so it's not a problem. Well, that's the reality of it, too. I know I know my dad's got a 25-foot pursuit, and every year he's like, oh, I want to get a 28. I want to go out there. I'm like, dude, you barely go out when it's calm out. <laughs> what do you need the extra footage for? Seriously. Plus, that boat ride's, like, unbelievable. But it's really funny because I think out of a lot of – I think everybody we've had on here that has a boat has had a pocker. Mike – him, Pete, Jim Lynch. Uh, well, it's just a tried, true, and tested fishing <laughs> machine. You know, I'm assuming you have no forward seating in your boat, right? No. 
Yeah, so it's like the, the platform is perfect for, for the inshore fishery here. And, you know, to your point, I mean, four-foot seas, who's going out in that? Even if I was in the 30-foot boat, I wouldn't think I would want to deal with it. Well, if you go on Facebook, there seems to be plenty of people that love going out on four-foot <laughs> seas and 17-footers. Yeah. <laughs> There's always somebody, you know. It's, 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 it's the same mentality as catching the first fish. Mm. I am not going to spend, you know, eight hours a day for two months just so that I can brag and say that I caught the first fish. As long as I catch one before Pete, I'm fine. That's all that matters. That's all right. That's all that matters. <laughs> and these two, my God. So Scott Scott works during the He's not retired. He works during the winter. And then he's got summer off, hence the name Summer Job Charters. And I'm a teacher. Pete was a teacher before he retired. And middle of May to June was horrible. You were so mean to us, Scott. <laughs> We'd be sitting there teaching classes. I know Pete had, had like half his classes gone because he taught seniors. He at least had his students tying knots and stuff for him. I didn't. I still had to teach math. I'm sitting there and then I get you know a nice picture from Scott. Oh, first one of the year, boys, as I'm taking attendance in the morning. <laughs> But you guys were really bad because I used to do the eighth grade field trip down to uh, Washington, D.C. And, you know, it's like a 10-hour, 12-hour bus ride. And you two would be hammering me the whole time just with fish pictures. You guys go out fishing together. It's like you planned it. <laughs> we would never do that. <laughs> that that's, that's evil. And, and, and we're, of course, saints. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So what is it that got you into the, the charter fishing, though? You know, everyone has a passion to fish. But then not everyone has it in them to take clients out and have the pressure of catching those fish. Well, okay, until, until I started chartering, my, my, my most favorite job in the world was teaching skiing. Uh, I had been a ski patrolman. Uh, I was a fairly good ski patrolman, but I decided that I would rather teach people to ski and not get hurt. And I enjoyed the process. So I thought that I would enjoy the process of chartering. And... It turned out that when I got my charter license, um, I realized I really didn't know how to fish, or at least how to fish to the level that we need to on a day-to-day basis. And then I enjoyed learning how to fish better, and I do like to teach people how to catch something. And I enjoy watching the look on their face when they catch that first really cool fish. And even if it's not a monster, if it's their really cool fish, it's fine. And that's that's what I enjoy about it. I like to take people out, teach them, show them, let them have a good time. Oh, that's awesome. I'm an avid skier myself. What was your favorite mountain? I grew up on Canada Mountain. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, a good one. The, the land, mountain. the land of ice. And uh, well, I I grew up in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. Oh okay. So it was 11 miles from my door to the to the tramway, and I went through the race program. I was a terrible racer, uh, and then I was actually started working at Canada Mountain when I was a senior in high school. Really yeah. cool. Yeah. Which mountain did you work? Did you work at a mountain for a while, Dan? Oh, I didn't work there. <laughs> but I went there every so day. So you told the family. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I, um, I spent a few winters at Sunday River. And then um, yeah. I, my, I fell in love with the Wildcat. Ended up there a couple yep. of winters, too. But had multiple 100-day ski seasons, you know, going yeah. wild and having fun. But things change. Grow up a little bit. Kids. The kids will change yeah. it. Yeah. The kids will change it. Well, you yeah. moved into the boating world, and thank God your girls love it. Yeah, yeah, this is true. And actually, they they, uh, they do like skiing, too. So, yeah. Or we get They're skiing stuff. already? Yeah, but the older one is four years old. Yep. Oh, nice. Very nice. So the other day, I went down to the, uh, the Parker River Run to watch the herring. You know, I try to make it down there every year. I feel like every year I kind of miss it. I'll see a little bit. But I saw a great herring run in there. It was, it was pretty chock full. 
And uh, I was talking to him. I said, oh, you should take the girls there tomorrow and tell them, tell them what Charlie was doing down there because I was getting a kick out of it. Oh, so it was uh, I, I, when I was there, it was a little bit overcast and it was kind of it was late in the day. So it wasn't really too, too bright. And um, first of all, like she didn't realize there were fish in the fish ladder at first because it was hard to see. And then she was looking closely and she's like, oh, I just saw one jump. And then every now and again, one would like dart up the ladder and you could see it jumping out. She's like, dad, I saw another one. But then we realized my sunglasses being polarized. I was like, oh, okay, this is the reason I'm seeing them. And they're not seeing them. I gave her the sunglasses and I called it fish vision. So here she is holding the sunglasses on her eyes, just like screaming, running around like, look at all the fishes. It was a, it was a blast. It was a definitely a fun thing. Uh, looking forward to do, doing that at least a few times every year with them until they until they lose interest anyway. It's a true rite of spring to go there. I mean, as, as a matter of fact, I was there yesterday and, and there wasn't a single fish there. Really? really? Wow. And it's it could have been the tide. Yeah, it could, like have, could have been because it was cold the night before. Could yep. have been any number of things. Mm-hmm. But it happens. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, you know, it's it's like catching the first fish. Mm. You know? It's it's the first time I see something there that's cool. You know, yeah. and I take pictures and I put it on my website and and people have already seen them, but they all still like to look at the fish going up the ladder too. I mean, who doesn't? It's like a new dawn of a new era. You know, yep. it's just like the seasons are turning. Everyone's kind of putting their winter their ski stuff away. My disc golf stuff away. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I didn't do any much of that this year. Yep. Um, but and now you're transitioning over, and you see it everywhere. You see all the trees blooming. All the I went for a walk this morning before work. There was birds everywhere, and it's like, all right, here we go. We got some life coming. Did you happen to check the water temperature when you were there? I did not check the water temperature. Oh, okay. Uh, I was in the Merrimack a couple of days ago with uh, with Pete, and in his little 17 foot whaler and not whaler Mako. And it was fifty three five. Yep. And we were talking earlier. You said that was kind of in the incoming tide too, so that's pretty good. I know. Yeah. Last Monday when we were offshore and Jeffries, I checked it at Jeffries. It was like forty four, forty five. But I, I didn't think to look at it on the way in. We were just on cruise control, hanging out at that point. But you know, any day now, any day now. Do you find that water temperature is kind of like the real kickoff to when you start getting your stripers? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, the herring come up the river uh, at 50 degrees. Mm-hmm. That's that's their spawn temperature. That's when they're they're willing to go up. So therefore, the fish that are following will go up at 50 degrees. But realistically, they can be some fish around, but they aren't going to be active. They start getting more active at 55. They'll chase things at 55. Before that, if you drop something in front of their nose and it's done just perfectly, they'll play. I agree with that 100%. I always feel like 50, 51 degrees is when I start getting my first. Like we talked about earlier, you get those days where you get one or two. Who knows? Maybe there's a holdover or two in there that's waking up. Maybe there's some scouts coming in, like you always call them. Some Mm -hmm. couple coming in, you, you get a few. And then just as it warms up a little bit more, and not so much that they might not even be there, but they're feeding now. Like Mm -hmm. that higher temperature gets them active to Mm -hmm. feed. And I also think, too, just kind of from what I've been seeing the last few years and talking to some other guys that fish upriver, like from shore and stuff, I got a feeling we get a big push of bigger fish sooner than we think, and they just are screwing up the river chasing those herring. You know, so you might hear down along the coast, other places getting bigger fish a lot sooner. But I don't know what other systems are like. If there's other estuaries that most of those fish are going up maybe a little bit sooner or if they have better access to it. But we usually get our first, like, 
consistent push of big fish around Father's Day weekend on when those fish we call it dropping back, you know, because they're upriver. The guys up at the dam are hammering them. And you hear a few people early in the spring getting a really large fish. Chris, I think a couple of years ago, there was a 45 pounder caught right off uh, right by uh, off the beach. And I feel like a lot of those are off the beach, too. People just throwing chunks out and a big old fatty's just swimming by and has an easy meal. You know? you, you'll you'll see Surfland report every once in a while that someone caught one off the Coast Guard sandbar. Yep. And my feeling is that that fish is just following the herring up. He's on he's on autopilot. Mm-hmm. But but that chunk of mackerel or herring or whatever the heck they did, just went right by his nose and it was a reflex bite and he that was it. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. There's nothing you can really predict. No. I'm not I'm gonna go catch a forty incher at the at the beginning of May. But if you happen to be in the right spot at the right time, you know, you might pick something cool yeah, like why that. Not, right? Yeah. I also find, too, like, when I'm looking at the water temperature taps, isn't it so frustrating for, like, a week and a half? It stays, like, at 48 degrees, 47. You're like, oh, come on, come on. But looking back, and I know you're a guy who takes really detailed logs. Um, looking back at some of my notes and things like that, I've noticed that wind direction also feels like sets that spring fishery up a week or two ahead. So, like, I find if we have consistent south-southwest winds and it's kind of warm, um, you know, um, you're getting a little bit warmer, warmer air temperature, which I think is heating up the water. But like if you get a string of three or four north, northwest wind days, it's like almost setting the clock back a couple days every time. That's another thing I've been kind of noticing. Like we might have around the water temp, but the wind direction and the cold fronts that keep coming in. Like, I mean, April, we've been having this northwest cold front wind now for almost like three weeks. So I'm hoping that changes soon and kind of speeds up the process. But Today is like what May, uh, April twenty seventh, mm-hmm. and you know guys are getting them down off the vineyard, and I think a couple came through the Cape today that I saw. So you know we're usually a couple weeks away from that. I think I think around like ten twelve days if things work well, we'll start getting them picking up here. Yeah, like like I said, we were talking earlier. Is I I have records of, of catching my first fish, you know May first, second, third. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can go back and tell you what year it was. The whole yeah, I'm, I'm one of those guys. But I think realistically, with the with the fewer fish around, less fish feeling pressure to chase ahead and get ahead of the other uh, feeding fish to mm-hmm. catch that bait, um, we're not going to see that quite as early. Even though the water is does seem to be warming up. Yeah. What was the best fishing year you've experienced? I'm old and I can't remember. Um, <laughs> I can look it up. I could tell you, but I mean, I've I've had Junes where you're catching a couple hundred legal fish. Yeah, which is wonderful. Uh, doesn't happen now. Uh, you know, you're catching, you're releasing, and letting them go as gently as possible. But it, we were slaying them for a while. Uh, I happen to know a gentleman named Barry Gibson, and, and back when he was still with Saltwater Sportsman, he would he would come down and he'd fish with me one one day a year. And he would just, and he fishes out of Maine, and he would just stand in the boat in awe and look around him at the number of boats and the number of people with bent rods and the number of bigger fish coming in. And it was just, he'd, he'd go, you know, we have a good day, we catch a dozen fish. And we were just hammering. But things have changed. I remember my first year chartering was probably the last year that this kind of happened but before that when i was you know working on the party boats meeting for pete a little bit and you know fishing on my own it always felt like the program was like go get breaking mark go get mackerel at breaking rock come back to the mouth drift it 
You know, that was it. That was the whole game plan. Yeah. You know, maybe a little bit on the beachfront, a little in the flats, but basically you got to get away doing that and catching a ton of fish, a ton of fish. And then, you know, then the next year was that big year that sucked. I think it was 2013 or 2014. Remember that year? It was really, really tough. It was like, I remember talking to you guys. I'm like, guys, like, am I doing something wrong? I only got like three fish today. And you were like, yeah, me too. Me too. And that's kind of how it was for most of the season. And, um, but then it obviously has picked up way more since then. I thought last year was a great bite. I thought the mouth bite last year was phenomenal. We haven't had yeah. that in a while. A lot of big fish, big, big fish <coughs> this year. It definitely seems to be more big fish around. You know, maybe I've just been doing a lot more and getting better at it because I'm spending so much time on the water than when I was like 19, 20. But it definitely feels like there's more around than, you know, early aughts. Well, if you have the ability to focus on it Mm -hmm. and stay with it Mm -hmm. it's amazing i mean you know we can say oh yeah there's lots and lots of big fish around there's all this stuff well if you've spent five hours out there fishing fishing hard doing everything right and you catch three or four really nice fish that's all people remember Mm -hmm. that's all you remember Mm -hmm. you know i mean you know we're we're not special (laughs) We, that's that's what we'll remember and 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 the worst thing on a charter is to go out and catch a 46 inch fish in the first drift oh god right off the bat <laughs> yeah with the, somebody who's never done it before yeah, that's because, a, because a then expect that to be the rest of the day and that could be the one big fish for the entire day yeah uh but yeah it's you know i, I think that we just we know better how to do it we know better that if we keep pounding and grinding and grinding we can pull something out of a spot at a specific time mm-hmm. and that's you know it shows up good in the log at the end of the year and at the end of the day but you know we, we aren't catching as many fish on those days either yeah yeah and i know um see that that was the one thing that this past year was great because you know we had the pogies come in and then right, right at the filers day they kind of vamoosed and but there was still the big fish that we had have with the pogies. They kind of stuck. They stuck around. And I think fishing with mackerel, you know, and doing the things that we used to do with the pogies a little bit and fishing those areas, um, it was nice because not only were we getting just the big fish. You know, you go out snagging pogies, you'd be you'd be decent day would be like maybe one big one per person, something like that. A couple of runoffs, see how it goes. But now we were last year we were catching schoolies, a couple slot fish for dinner, and a big one for a pitcher, and throw it back. So it was it was kind of nice this year to have a little more variety. And I think fishing with the mackerel gives you that. You know, sometimes yeah. fishing those pogies are tough. I know you're not a big pogie guy. I know you and Pete kind of just do your mackerel thing. And you know what? That's not a bad play, dude. I hate them. <laughs> it's not I a hate bad em. play. <laughs> You know, you're looking at a minimum 32-inch fish. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and you know, you get all excited and, you, and your pogey goes up in the air, and that's great. And if it goes up in the air twice, that's still okay. <laughs> if it goes up in the air the third time, you might as well pull out a sandwich because there's nothing going to happen. Dude, when they're chasing it around <laughs> like that. So what I started doing, because, like, you know, we were all learning it on the fly. I never grew up fishing the pogey bites. And one of the things I started doing with once I got pogies was spot locking with my trolling motor and pitching baits back. And it's a, kind of a love-hate relationship because sometimes you throw that pogey out and you'll just see a bass whack it for, like, 60 seconds, like, literally a minute. You're like, come on, eat it and what i started doing is if they missed it a few times and i was getting frustrated probably before about a year i'm just like you know what i'm just gonna tease them in and i'd reel it hard crank it up and maybe drop some slack off and that actually got them to commit to it a little bit harder you know you ran the risk of kind of spooking it off but at the same time 
if they're just going to be slapping it around, you know, you might as well try to entice that bite. Yeah, I do remember though, like pre, like when you would use treble hooks. Like yeah, if you use a double treble rig on the uh, pogie. If it is a smaller fish, there's a chance you're going to be able to hook that fish. You might not be able to swallow it, but at least you can get a hook in its mouth. Yeah, I always kind of rigged up differently. I did the double trebles when I trolled with my drags locked up because mm-hmm. I didn't want them swallowing anything. Um, we tried it with. Uh, a circle so it's funny when we first started fishing pogies we always use circle hooks for mackerel so i bought some bigger circle hooks and fallon and i obviously are really close and we talk about new things like this all the time and i hook up ratio with the circle hooks and some like bridal clips were phenomenal for like three days like we're like dude this really works with the circle hooks and then we have one day we were both spot locking next to each other and we both lost like six or seven hookups and we're like yeah no this isn't working and then we went to single j's with drags locked up but i think now that i know how to do it a little bit better um the circle hooks still are productive i think the big thing is is i think the bridle was a big help you know scott actually introduced me to those what's it called the uh, ultimate bait bridle Ult- ultimate bait bridle is one yeah. talk about it you, you you're the one who showed them to me well Explain actually the ultimate I- See, that's that goes back and forth. I I actually stopped using them. Okay. Uh, they they do work. I found that rubber bands worked better. Okay. Yeah. So you take the time to yeah. do the whole thing. Yeah. I you know I rig them with a the rubber band, and and the reason I did was because I would have fish if they weren't really turned on, they would turn that bait around and they would feel that piece of metal. Yeah. And spit it out. That could have been what happened with us too. And so I just I stopped using them. I still yeah. have a bunch of them, and, and you know it was it, I had a great run with it. Probably could still have another good run with it. It's it's amazing how something is the, your favorite lure, and then it doesn't catch anything, and then it collects dust. Then it just goes away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but but no, I, I started with that, and and it worked out really well. But I don't think this is perfect. I don't think anything's perfect. No, no. Um, but so. Uh, we are a couple weeks away from hopefully having some consistent mackerel. The last couple of years, it's been a little bit later. Yeah, it's been, you know, it's been closer to the middle of June. I know. What's going on with that? <laughs> uh, well, other than the, I really think it was water temperature. Yeah, I think it was water temperature more than anything else because there's plenty of mackerel. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of discussion about them being depleted and all, but. They may be depleted off uh, off south of New Jersey, but they're not depleted here. We we catch a ton of them. No, they're certainly not. And even though we've kind of had that later start, the last few years with them, where they're coming in consistently, um, they're here all summer. I mean, they're they're everywhere. I think I caught more mackerel last year off of Plum Island, where I normally fish either east or north. That's just kind of the areas mm-hmm. I feel really comfortable with. But we were fishing down the island so much, you know, I was trying to find some spots down there and, you know, we had no problem getting them. There were times when we were fishing in 20, 30 feet of water and pulling full strings up like uh, while we were bass fishing. It was it was wild. It was that funny pattern, though, where if the mackerel fishing was amazing. The striper fishing sucked. <laughs> kind of and then, it then it's like you hear about the striper fishing being awesome and you can't find a mackerel anywhere <laughs> it always kind of happens man. shoulda like coulda woulda yeah. <laughs> what I can't figure out is like with all these mackerel schools kicking around like you know I, I still throw a balloon out occasionally you know what if I got the right group and things aren't wild I'll throw a balloon out and I had a couple swirls on it last year I think we got one in the mackerel grounds it's like why don't the stripers hang out there with all of them? Are they too fast or, you know, it's not really their habitat. It's a little too deep, but then you got the offshore stripers. So I've always like kind of wondered, like, 
how come sometimes like you go to your normal macro like breaking rock look at all the structure they got there like why are we bass fishing there more there's got to be fish there I'm yeah. sure there are, but it's it's oh, like so trying to it's like trying to catch a uh, a big bass in the huge pokey field. Yeah, yeah there's so true. much bait that they, they, you know they have to find your bait to find it interesting. <laughs> and I just that's why you know breaking rock is you know I, I may write sometimes. Yeah, actually I don't write very much about anymore, so I, I, it's not really a lie. But uh, I, I used to do fishing reports on my own website, and I'd say, yeah, breaking rock's great. Well, I don't really fish there. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. it, it is definitely a good you spot. Where you should fish there. But. <laughs> it's definitely a spot where you can send people, and most of the time they're going to find enough luck to get what they need if they bump around even a little bit. But I fished there more last year than I had probably in my last like six years combined just because they were they just were there you yeah. know especially the yeah. second half of summer so yeah. i'm not moving it was kind of a pain in the ass the first few weeks uh, i felt like the f- mid-june when they first came in to like the first week of july i did feel like every day we were kind of in a different area but yeah, you know you i just gotta wait till scott gets out shows. there with his friggin nine bodies of chum that he dumps <laughs> in the water so scott is like the mackerel guy so i you know, this is where my advantage comes in, where I'm still working. You know, he's off during the springtime. You know, we'll text him, "Hey, getting any mackerel yet? Did you go out this morning? I'm going to go out this afternoon." So, uh, and I know you know somebody who's been chartering here since like 1999. Mackerel's our game. Mackerel's our game, and it's a very underrated and overlooked aspect of fishing around here. And if there's a guy who's in tune with it. Buddy, it's you. It's you. The the reality is, is that so many people want to catch a fish. They want to. They want to go out and grab something. They want. We'll 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 go catch a couple mackerel and we'll go fishing. And they go out there and they spend fifteen minutes trying. And they didn't bring any chum. They got three week old sabikis and and they went with their cousin's friend's brother said to go and and all that and and they they go try it for half an hour and then they move or they move four times in a half an hour and then they say well the hell with it we've got some frozen bait we'll go use that yeah that's generally probably how it goes i um i approach it as the first most important part of the day absolutely and for me i I think that generally, if, if, if you don't have all of your bait and if you're not ready to go by 7, 30, 8 o'clock, then it's pretty much, it's not over, but it gets harder. Especially if you're planning on fishing a place that's a little bit further away or if you had to go, you know, if you have to go run north to go south, you know, yeah. that's always a tough one. You know, if yeah. you got to go up to Hampton Shoal Ledge to get bait, then run down to the Parker or the Rock Pile or southern oh. in the island, like yeah. in a four-hour trip, yeah. you better yeah. get mackerel yeah. quick. Four hours, you got to make it happen. So when you say uh, sabiki's on the on the rods for X amount of time, what's your uh, when are you, when are you changing those out? It depends on how many fish we're catching. Yeah. First of all, uh, if you if you're hammering them, you lose a lot of hooks real quick. Mm-hmm. I use two different types of sabikis. Uh, I, I happen to have one that I really like. That's that's a pretty um, pretty delicate actually. It's it's a ten pound mainline strength and a seven pound branch line strength and. And if you get two or three fish on there, you can start stripping hooks pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So you'll go through two, three, four sabiki rigs in a day. Uh, I have others that are 30-pound line and 20-pound branch strength and stronger hooks. Those stick around a little bit longer. And those I can use, um, and, and, and my clients can use them for two, three days. Uh, you know, if this hooks start getting rusty, if they start losing the shine, 
change it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's definitely the thing. Once it, for me, if I'm if I lo- if I lose like one feather on it, no big deal. But once I lose two, yeah, I'll re- it depends too. Like if I do, if I'll do some, I'll do like one or two full strings and a couple half strings for my clients, and then I'm just like in the middle getting hooks in my face. It's great. You know, if you- <laughs> I am the I'm the king of the double string. <laughs> yeah, Dan, Dan takes two sabikis and puts them together. <laughs> Bless your heart. Bless your heart. He had one drop. He had one drop. He went twelve for twelve. He dropped it down, filled them all up, pulled them all up. No tangles. I couldn't believe. Are it. you using uh, a nine foot? rod they hope it's, it's no it's, it's only a six and a half foot rod it's, actually it's it actually if, yeah. if you use a small surf rod it's better yeah i had to get real tall to get those things out of the water. <laughs> you're on your tippy toes how tall are you you're like six, six two, two. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah there were a few days last year too where i noticed uh i don't i i hate mackerel fishing without chum i just i to me it's you know it's a lot it can be a lot more challenging yeah if you show up in there yeah, that's awesome but um there were a couple of days last summer that i had the chum slick going and uh I had mackerel all around me, and they weren't eating the sabiki. So I actually ended up baiting the sabiki with chum, and then finally started catching the mackerel. Yeah, that's an old Scott McGuire trick. Yeah, yeah, you use that, or or it's a more or, tedious. Or, this is listen to Scott's stuff. Or or you take a a little gold bait hook, uh, and and put a put a chunk of, of mackerel on it, mm-hmm. and then Roddy rod holder is your best tool. Yeah, because you put that out, you drift it out because. If you watch that piece of bait, and when you can't see it, it means that a mackerel has it, then your instinct, if you have it in your hand, is you're going to set it. And you'll nine times out of ten miss it. Yep. But if you leave it in a rod holder, you'll catch it. They'll catch it. Yeah, it's really funny. And, and you know, that was always kind of the trick when they were up in the up in the slick but not eating your sabiki, taking a little piece of chum and a little tiny gold trout hook. It had to be gold. I don't know about that. That's what you and Pete told me, so I've never gone off the works. gold. Works. Right? It works. And then again, same thing. It's frustrating because you see you see the mackerel eat it, and you pull up on them. You're like, "What the hell am I missing these things?" So what I do sometimes, and actually I haven't had to do it much the last couple of no. years, which has been really no. nice. No, but like I'll take all the sabikis off. I'll get four guys with four rods, and I'll just drop them out and put them in the rod holder and say, "Hey, when that bends, grab it." Yep. You know, yep. and it's a little bit of a slower process, but you know, a few mackerel or taking an extra ten minutes is better than no mackerel. When it's really really finicky, if you've got some mackerel, you're better off. Yeah. True, true. Because if you've got a few, most people don't have any. Yeah, exactly. And and those fish that where you're going to go fish aren't seeing so many baits, and, and your 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 odds are better. Yeah. How many mackerel do you like in your live well for a trip? I like to black out the tank. Yeah. Um, and the problem, or, or okay, the reason for it is, first of all, there you're going to have some die off. Of course. Uh, dead baits are not a bad thing. Uh, I use a lot of dead baits. Sometimes I, I catch more fish on dead baits than mm-hmm. do live ones. But sometimes the size of it matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, uh, it, whether it's frisky or not, I, you have to have a live bait on, on, a, on a flat tide. You need the movement. You need all that to happen. But uh, I actually go to the extent of I, carry, I have two five-gallon buckets on the boat that I fill up halfway with water. And I have people put the mackerel in the five-gallon bucket, and then and then I scoop them into the tank. Therefore, you're eliminating a lot of the uh, the scales. You're eliminating a lot of the blood. If you have big-time bleeders, they go in the back of the boat. You do not ever immediately. Ever, yeah, you never ever put those in your in your bait tank. 
because it just kills off all of your bait. And that's a big thing I think a lot of people don't realize too, especially ones when you're out there struggling for me. I know, I know sometimes like if we're out there and it's been like 20 minutes and we finally start getting a few and like the first three that come over are bleeders. I'm like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> but you can't put them in there. Put them in a five-gallon bucket. Put them in a bucket. You know, you, your body stops bleeding with fresh air. Yeah. They're, they stop bleeding in salt water. Yeah. Put them in salt water, and there's a good chance they'll stop. Mm-hmm. You know, if you haven't really killed them and gut hooked them yep. or anything, if, you, if they're just a little blood, put it in a bucket. Mm-hmm. Then take your bait net and put them in the tank, and you're all set. Yeah, we did the same thing when we were snagging and dropping pogies, too. Uh, snagging pogies and, like, yeah. moving them somewhere. We'd snag them, and we'd have, like, three buckets around the boat, and we'd let them bleed out. And then if they weren't floating over, we'd toss them into the tank. So uh, I think that's a big thing people don't realize too sometimes it's not just about getting mackerel it's about getting good mackerel it's about keeping them alive for the day um again one of the first things that you can do that's under your control is don't put the bleeders in don't put the bleeders in i do like the idea that you had that you put the mackerel in a little bucket for us to get rid of the scales and stuff and then um we also have a couple other things that we do too do you want to talk about the uh the tank oh you you still running that thing (laughs) I I didn't last year uh, because my my the, my air valve got plugged up and I couldn't get a new one. Me too, Scott. Mine it, it it's totally got corroded or filled up with salt and I couldn't couldn't use it. Um, but yeah, they uh, you know putting the oxygen in the water in the tank is definitely a big help. So just to let you guys know what we're talking about, a few years ago, I think was John the first one. John to get Parkhurst it? was the first one to do it. Yeah, John Parkhurst. You know, you guys heard him on the podcast. He's bought a muscle in Merrimack here with us, and uh, he's telling me he got this oxygen tank for his live well. And I'm just like, for what? You know, if I'm going up river or the water's hot or if it's overcrowded, I can throw a little oxygen. Supposedly they're going to stay alive all day. So he was the guinea pig. And it seemed to work really well. Yeah. I remember there was a few days when we were up in Amesbury, and I see him throwing these mackerel that are kicking around. He's like on his tenth thrift, and mine are all dead. And you know he's doing pretty well on it. So of course we gotta get one. Yeah. And you got one. Scott uh, Pete has one too, right? Yep. And uh, once I figured it out, what a game changer! That was a really great thing. Yeah, I'll never forget Chris when you just like was straight up pumping oxygen into that thing though. And then they came out, it was like they were on crack, like bloodshot oh, eyes. I think Rick, you were there the first time I ran it. So the first time I ran it, there's there's a setting valve. It's like an uh, it's like an oxygen regulator on a medical oxygen tank. So, you know, people who have the oxygen tanks. And there are settings on it. And they start off like at an eighth, a quarter, a half. And then they go up to one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm like, oh, shit. What was it? I think I think he said four. I think I have to put it on four. Oh, my God. So I had it on four. I opened up the tank. A maverick comes shooting out. I swear to God, you needed to wear a bulletproof vest. I thought it was going to rip right through me. They were pink. Their eyes were red. They're like, bro, let me go. <laughs> you put them in the water. They were pulling drag. I'm not even kidding. I'm like, I think I did a little too much yeah. oxygen. Yeah. So I think, it, I think it was like around an eighth or a quarter yep. is what you wanted to be at. But what I found really useful in addition to like my fishing with them, uh, it was great for me in between my trips. I do morning and afternoon. So if I'm back at the dock I, and I only had like an hour or two hour um, in between time, uh, they would stay alive. They would stay alive. You just had to keep some. Uh, I had frozen bottles of ice. Uh, like frozen one liters. I can't get a two liter in my live well hole. So frozen one liter uh, bottles of water and it kind of cools them down, chills them out. And I'll tell you one thing, I really do wish I had it last year with the amount of fish that were inside the river and Joppa. But the water was so fresh from all the rain that we had. I had a really hard time keeping my mackerel alive in Joppa this year. Did you? Were yeah, you okay? It was, it was awful. 
It was really bad. It was awful. And it was, it was the third most rainy July in history. And felt like there it. was a lot of there was a lot of very uh, strange foreign objects floating down the river from Manchester and Lawrence and Lowell and the water was brown and it was brown all the way down the length of the island. So yeah. I I fished on Joppa some, I fished in the mouth some, I tended to fish outside as much as I could. When, when it's so polluted, you don't want to put your hand in the water, I don't really want to eat the fish. I, I don't know if I just noticed it more this past year or and if it's always been like that. But there were days like at, at low tide, that brown water was like a half a mile south of the houses on Plum Island. It, it literally went all the way down. Yeah. I mean, there, was, there was a period of time at the end of July when it didn't make it down to Badgers. Yeah. But then that kind of changed. No, it was, it was bad. And then I remember too, like usually in like mid-July at like a high tide at my docks, like in between trips, the water's crystal clear. And I always remember this because it's always like... It's always probably around July 4th or July 15th or so. I start getting a little herring around my docks, you know, at high tide on those crystal clear days. And we had none of that because it was all brown. Yeah. It, was, it was brown even at dead high. Yeah. I mean, half the time, like, you'd be trying to, trying to fish in the river on that incoming, and you'd be four hours into it, and the sailboats weren't even turned yet. Yeah. It, was, it was crazy. So it was really weird on the incoming this year, fishing in the river. Um, I pretty much spent my time kind of split this year. I was in and out of the river every kind of, like, uh, you know, usually after, like, mid-July, I'm definitely out in the ocean as much as I can be. But, you know, there were times in August we were fishing the mouth. And I'll just never forget, like, three years ago, I was fishing Joppa, and we were with pogies, and we were hammering fish in 84-degree water. I couldn't believe it. It, would, it had been like usually 73 is kind of like, eh, kind of want to get out of here. That's kind of like my go-to shutoff. But then there was a couple days. It was 73, 75, and they were still in there. And then I go in there one day, and it was like 83. I'm like, oh, Christ, this isn't going to go good. And we threw out three baits, and they all got walloped. And we're like, all right, guess we're sticking around here. <laughs> Nothing wrong with this. Nothing wrong with that. I don't know if they had bait in there or what they were doing. But um, that was definitely an interesting thing for me a couple of years ago. And then this year, with how brown and how fresh it was, um, it was still pretty good. The mouth bite was good. So, yeah, sometimes things are weird, man. Sometimes things are weird. But um, just going back to mackerel, um, when you're going out there, right, what are you looking for for mackerel, like for your, for your spots? Are you predetermining, like, all right, I'm going to check this spot out and this spot out, or are you leaving and then seeing anything there that might catch your attention? You go give it a shot, anything that's like, ooh, that looks pretty good, I got to hop over there? Uh, first of all, uh, I think of mackerel as little predators, mm-hmm. not, not bait. So... <laughs> So yeah. if, if you think in those aspects, then, then it's no different than, than striper fishing. And, and I leave every day with a plan. Mm-hmm. I'm not married to that plan, but I, I have a plan based on the, the prior days or what's going on. Um, and unfortunately, there's only a couple of guys out ahead of me, so I kind of have to depend on those plans. If I see something on the surface, I take advantage of it. Absolutely. Uh, if I, if I slow down and take a look, uh, I do have side scan now, but since that really only works at two to six miles an hour, it's, it's, you, know, you have to kind of slow down and look. Yeah. So, but no, I, I have places that I, I, I plan to go. Yeah. Uh, I go to those places because, again, thinking of them as, as little predators, uh, 
they have, I think they're structure oriented. I agree 100%. So they're on the edges or they're on the, on the top some days. It's like you know, sometimes the fish are on top of Joppa, sometimes they're on top of a, of a plateau, but uh, usually I find them on the edges. Yeah. I try to fish. If I'm just kind of going in a little blind, like going to an area, like, all right, it's been good here. I try to get my drift along the edge as long as possible. I want to be able to hit the high spot, the deep spot, and along it and chum them in because chances are they're hanging around somewhere there. I mean, it's a good ambush spot for them for the things that they're eating. You have the swirl of the currents that are created from those upwellings, uh, nutrients getting kicked up. It's like a little ecosystem. And, you know, if you go to that plant, if you're fishing high spots or ledges and structure, um, chances are, you know, you you might have to move around a little bit and cross some things off your list but i think eventually that's a good way to go um another thing i i do too is like when i see like a tide line on a ledge like whoo that gets me going you know you get that flat water and then the choppy water right next to it i'm a big tide line fan especially i don't know if early in the season i feel like it, they fish pretty well too i feel like the mackerel might be a little bit higher that time of year you can see them a little bit better on top so I know, same thing as you. I have a plan on the way out, but I'm not married to it. If I see something on the way out, something a little bit closer to home, maybe I see some high-flying birds and check it out, see what's going on. I'm not really a big bird guy when it comes to mackerel, but there has been times that saved my butt too. So especially open water mackerel, you know, where there is no structure and you just see like four or five seagulls. I mean, uh, we saw a gannet the other day, right? Yeah, we saw a couple gannets offshore, which I was like, wow. I I usually only see them in the fall. I never really see them in the spring. So I thought that was kind of weird. But um, yeah, I'm I'm looking for the structure first. The structure first. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, It's structure and and chum. And chum. 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 I start every season with 150 bags of chum. How much in a bag? A gallon? Uh, They're gallon bags. They're not quite full. Yeah. And that's that's my starting point occasionally i have to make more yeah uh, i i am never shy about using chum and like you i have a trolling motor mm-hmm. um, spot lock is a wonderful thing but sometimes if you don't have them on you what i've learned is that if you underpower spot like you know do a, you know do a course mm-hmm. and underpower it you will drift back with the wind yep and you, you can just control the drift. So instead of using the drift chutes, I have three drift chutes I used to use. Yeah. Uh, you can control your drift. You can cover some ground. You can do it in a manageable distance. Uh, it does you no good to chum something up that's beyond the casting range. Correct. And certainly with ch- with customers, you don't want them casting sabiki rigs with 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 diamond jigs anyway. Let me tell you something. It's it's almost like a staple part of my program. When I have a sabiki rod in my hand about to cast, I just stop. I go, everybody, do not do this. First words that come, do not do this. I got it. I'll see if I can get them back in. And that's another thing, too. If like you're kind of wailing on them a little bit and you get a good chum slick back and all of a sudden they stop, if you're somebody... So this is really like I'll keep a half of sabiki like up in my T-top specifically for me just to do this, too. So if you're not getting anything for your mackerel after a few minutes and they seem to kind of move around, sometimes they'll come to the chum, then they'll circle back. A lot of times if you take that sabiki and chuck it behind your boat, you know, 20, 30 yards, you can call them back in. You can see if you can get another one and just slowly reel it in and get that school right back to the to the back of your boat. And even, even if you high speed it. Yeah. They'll chase it. They'll chase it. They'll chase the jig. They'll chase it. 
And, uh, they're very aggressive fish. People don't realize that. You know, think of king mackerel. Think of Spanish mackerel. Predators. They're predators, they're and predators. that's a great way to put it, Scott. I never really, no one ever thinks about it like that because they're small, but they're out there. They're eating like those little herring. They're eating the the uh, sand eels. You know, do they eat plankton and stuff? I'm, I don't even know. I don't think so. I don't no, think but so. They, but they krill. They, yeah, they, krill. they eat everything that does eat plankton. So yeah. 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 So they're just they're fast little bullets, man, and it's the lifeblood of what we do, yeah. which is why tonight, Dan and i are actually going up to portsmouth to hear some more about some of the management processes that they're talking about for 2023 and hopefully we can get our first of all get the information to find out what the heck they're actually talking about and then uh seeing what we can do to make sure that we still have a macro fishery for us because it's really important it's really important for our ecosystem it's really important as a business thing for a guide and just for anybody you know if my dad wants to go out and go striper fishing he needs to get some mackerel to fish with so um yeah, some of the proposals are a little scary i mean i don't i can i can live with we can all live with 20 uh 20 per person yeah that's that's manageable that's that's a wonderful thing uh but to cut it off on july 31st because they don't want they don't know how they can manage it you know no it doesn't make sense and and i know when they were first started talking about it um we had i had heard about the season like you said july 31st i was like oh god yeah. oh god i think we just had matt air in the podcast yeah. and then uh i called him up next day i'm like well, what is going on and uh and um, so we just talked about that a little bit, and I was trying to convince them, like, you know, can you give, like, 15 or 20 per person? Because I'm like, I think that's totally reasonable. You know, I think on my boat, minimum, minimum, I want a dozen per person before I go striper fishing. So if I'm four people, that's 48 mackerel. But, um, you know, I really feel good when I, like you said, black out my tank, you know, black out my tank. And then I use them for my afternoon trips, too. Yep. So that's the other thing. It's very difficult sometimes to get mackerel in the afternoon. Yes. It, it can be a damn challenge, whether it's the wind. Sometimes I can't even get to where I want to go comfortably. Like, I might have gone to, like, Shoal Edge to four-and-a-half-mile run in the morning. And then in the afternoon, that wind kicks southeast, and those things stack up to three-foot chop. It's like, oh, good luck, dude. You're going to get slammed. Yep. You're gonna get. I will say that's one reason, one thing about my Parker on that four mile afternoon run that wasn't so comfortable, and that's what kind of led me to my pair custom that I have now, and you know, kind of the same thing, a modified V, but just a little bit heavier, a little bit longer, a little more V in the front, so it's it's a little bit better in a head seat um, than my Parker was, but you know, and just made it a little bit more comfortable in some of my afternoon trips, um, but yeah it's just it's just a lifeblood so we all got to kind of figure out what exactly they thinking about that they want to do i'm just trying to get a little bit more information from them that's uh, just it you know we're there to hear them out hear what they have to say and then provide any input if we can provide it i just feel like a lot of the data that they collect is just from the wrong people though the, the reality too is that they when it's never really been a managed program mm -hmm. they have no idea how many fish recreational fishermen catch uh, they're trying to manage it from the southern end of the range of the fish. Well, right right out the gate, they said that 20% of yeah, the recreational catch is from the beach. It, that's not good data. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> like, you know? Okay. Yeah, but, and as I recall, during uh, you know 20 years ago, when, when the first real battles were going on with codfish, they were claiming this exorbitant amount of fish that we were catching off the beach as well. 
and uh, you know nobody had caught a codfish off the beach in 20 years at that point. Yeah. So, so yeah, they 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 throw things out, but it's 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 not always accurate. You know, it's one thing. It's one thing now that I've been guiding going into my she's tenth year now. I remember when I first started and signed up for the Captain's Association and stuff like that. And when I used to go, it was Mike Sosick was the president and I don't know people listening probably won't know Mike, he passed away, but he was a great guy, man. He cracked me up. But he was the head of the Charter Boat Association and he was a big ground fisherman out of York. Was it York City yes. Fish? Yeah. Yes. Big haddock guy. I actually made it for him. Shark trips up there. And um, I remember, you know, I'm 22 years old going to these meetings and it's all political and and all this. And I used to just sit there and be like kind of bored. And, you know, Pete would be like, yeah. And now looking back at it, man, he was right. And uh, I try to get as much involved as I can now. I've been going to as many meetings and at least educating myself. And I hired a lawyer to read some of the some of the uh, documents that come out because it can be a little challenging to follow. But it's hard, you know. I see it from my own little world, you know. And to me, something macro is like, Jesus, better than ever, you know. And uh, you know, just hopefully there's some sort of solution where, you know, we're able to fish for them without much restriction. And whatever problem that they see that they're having with the population gets back. But like you said, you know, a lot of the complaints are coming from the places that are the southern end of their region that they haven't caught in 30 years you know so that, i don't think that's me and you going up there with sabiki rigs taking 20 fish a day you know well you know the the, the, the recently on the news they were stating that uh, our area out here in front is is the warmest fastest heating area on the ocean in the world that's correct the gulf of maine gulf of maine um, interestingly enough that horrible increase is four degrees yeah okay but um I mean, four degrees is four degrees, and it's important. But if you take that, and, and it's not really even the Gulf of Maine where they're doing this data, where they're, you know, all of their information gathering is so much warmer than yeah. even what we have. And our fish are going further north. So, so I, I think that it's just more, more of a warming waters issue than mass. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I remember when I was going to the other meeting that they had online over the winter, and they were showing us some of the charts and data and locations of things. That's that's what my mind just kept going back to. It's like it just seems like there's environmental factors here that are making more of an impact. Things may be out of our control as fishermen. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, I don't know, what are these guys doing? They're looking for something to do or, you know, I know they all have the best intentions and they work really, really hard. But also, like you said, it hasn't been a uh, uh, regulated fisheries so what kind of data do you have on it right right what kind of true data do you have to really know where all this information comes from and how it relates because if they had an mrip guy coming to my boat asking me for macro i'd be like i don't know it's probably about 150 in there you know every day yeah. you know hopefully yeah. knock on wood yeah. and um it's just so funny how these little predator bait fish are <laughs> are such a huge part of our ecosystem of yes, what we are. do here and then especially last year with the pogies kind of screwing off i feel like in june i mean granted i was back at school during the year you know the year before we had covid so i was uh teaching from home my classes didn't start till 11 it was pretty sweet so i got to go fishing in june in the morning every day for the first time in a while and it was great because i was fishing a lot of top water having some fun doing some charters and then like last year i was back to just doing the weekends but it still didn't feel like we had that big drop back or upswing of herring i didn't find a lot of feeds this year i thought it was 
pretty slow in the herring feeds on the in that June range. Did you find the same? Or yes. yeah, and I think pretty much a lot of the guys that I talked to were finding the same thing. It wasn't really much of a plug bite in that in the normal way that it has been in June. I I don't fish charters with plugs. Yeah, but it's tough. Man. I'm I'm I search for things to do for myself. Yes. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't do as many charters as I used to. Uh, at seventy years old, I get tired. <laughs> but I don't mind going out and throwing plugs myself. Oh, it's a blast! You know, so I'm. I'm. I still have the disease. I just can't keep up with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing about you, Scott, and like, I remember when I was a young guy, and you know, I was only doing like a handful of trips a year. But like, it's that obsession. It's that sickness, and like. Even if I didn't have a charter, I'd be out there fishing trying to figure out. And I've always had huge respect for you doing that. There's a lot of times I'll see you out there on your own, either getting a bunch of bait, trying a new spot, and you're fishing for your charter for tomorrow and the next day. Absolutely. You know? And I think people don't realize that. I, there's a lot of people, and I get it, You're doing a, people are doing a lot of trips, or even some that aren't doing trips. Some people only go out when they're getting paid. And... I don't know. That's not me. That's not you. That's not Pete. That's not Fallon. You know, it doesn't matter. If we have nothing else to do, we're going fishing. Sometimes we move things around so we can go fishing. Actually, I picked my career so I could go fishing. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's foresight. <clears throat> yeah. But it's, it's just, it's part of the puzzle. And that's kind of what makes it fun for me. Like, my old, my old saying is when people are like, oh, we can't keep that. It's too small. We're too big now. I'm just like, hey, man, the tug is the drug. You know, the tug is the drug. That's what keeps you back. And for me now, um, I love watching other people catch it. You know, it, people's perspective is a whole bit different thing. Every trip, there's somebody on the boat that's catching their first, the biggest, the most. They've never seen anything like it, whether it's a little kid or, Christ, I, I had a couple of guys around my age last year. Uh, one caught his first keeper and would not stop talking about it like just the greatest thing ever thank you like hugging me i'm like get away it's covid i don't know you dude <laughs> i just kidding but then he caught a real nice one a, a, a real big one towards the end of the trip oh my god he's texting me pictures in the middle of winter out of nowhere just hey remember that fish <laughs> you know it's so cool dude seeing people happy and you got to be a part of that it goes back to you teaching it's a big deal it's a big deal i love hearing too like um, kind of love-hate relationship with this. Customers that come out that have their own boats and stuff like that, and they're trying to pick up a few things. And they're really cool because you develop that relationship with them, and they'll go out you know, a week later, and they'll, they'll text you a picture and be like, hey, man, thanks. We did that thing you tried. You know, the thing you told me about, I, I fixed my hooks and my knots, and you know, I was able to get mackerel pretty good. I really appreciate it. And, like somebody taking that information that you taught them in four hours and being able to go out there and have some fun and do it on their own just kind of pays it forward mm -hmm. and for me too like a lot of people are like oh you take people in the river that have their own boat i'm like yeah dude. every day is different every day is different i'm not telling you guys what i'm doing fishing every single day and there's things i keep to my chest but i got no problem telling somebody that you know the mouth's good or you know you got to figure it out from there but the techniques the tackle setting up my troll spread those are all little things and little skills that you acquire. You showed me things. Pete showed me things. Captain showed me things. Uh, you know, me and Fallon go back and forth. Even Dan and I go back and forth on a bunch of stuff. And just always trying to build a better mousetrap. And if you can help somebody and they feel success, they feel like 
Uh, they got their money's worth. They got better at something. And a lot of times those guys come back anyway, even if they have their own boat. You know, maybe they came in June and they want to do cast some lures and maybe do a little drifting. And then maybe they come back in July and they want to learn trolling. And then pretty much those guys that have their boats, I get them on shark trips a lot, too. They all want to learn how to go shark fishing. Yeah. So, which... If anybody does shark fishing, other than the initial setup of getting all your crap together, it actually is some of the simplest fishing you can kind of yeah. do. And that's why I like it. It's, you know, I go from, I'll stop doing haddock in the end of May, and then from June to pretty much the third week of July, I'm bass fishing every day. So it's nice to get back offshore, tug on something big, a little something different, getting away from the crowds, which is phenomenal. So that's one of the reasons why I try to fish off the beach as much. It's this, you know, you get in the situation where you hit one or two people annoying you, oh. as opposed to fifty. Isn't it kind of crazy? But even though you're somewhere in the mountain, there's like three thousand boats there. Yeah. Isn't it always like one or two boats that you're just like, oh man, what's this guy doing? Like everybody's kind of playing nice here. We could figure it out. What is this guy doing? Well, it's it's arrogant. I didn't even mean to say they were annoying you. I, I, I didn't mean it that way. But yeah. Uh, you know, there you have to be aware of yeah. things that are around you, know, you a I mean, little I, bit more. If if I'm the only person on a spot on the beach, you know, you don't need to be four feet from me. No, you know, because there's other places. But but most people don't do that. Yeah, and you know, I don't I don't approach anybody else and, and push them out of my spot. Yeah, uh, you know, I'll find another spot. Yep, there's I've come across a few bullies out there that try to push me out of there and get that. Out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because you got that nice new yellow boat. You know, everyone's like, "Who's this guy? I think he is." Yeah, the boat see, magnet. See, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know about these colored boats, man. People can pick you out of a crowd. Well, that's what that's I love about my Parker. There's 500 of them around here. Yeah. Nobody. Somebody was like, "Hey, dude, I followed you all the way to Boar's Head. Did you get anything?" I'm like, "What are you talking about?" Because <laughs> <laughs> I had that Isinglass enclosure of mine. Yep. Right. <clears throat> and there was another boat in the river that has it as well. And everybody always got us confused. So yeah. it was perfect. <laughs> I had someone get angry with me because they had trouble with their boat one time and they were they were drifting up and, and i think they did bump the uh, the north jetty mm. you're right there and you didn't even help me well i wasn't there <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't there <laughs> you know oh man for the, for the record my boat is not yellow it's a uh, seafoam green oh okay <laughs> <laughs> no it's not <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Myers, did you get a troll motor in your pair custom yet? Because mine's ice blue. <laughs> Not the green one, ice blue. I used to do seminars, and, and, and we have a dear friend that's passed away named Bob Bush, and, and he was a, a diseased fisherman as well. Smelly Bob, and we talked about it Bob. with that crossroads and, and, last week. And he would, uh, he, he would be, be at the seminars just to, to sit there and laugh at me. And uh, somewhere through throughout every single seminar, I would tell everybody, yeah, it's really, it's no problem. I have a green Eastern. You can follow me anywhere you want. <laughs> but that was his boat, not mine. <laughs> One of the first seminars I ever did um, was for the um, Plum Island Surf Casters. Mm -hmm. And uh, I knew you and, you and Pete were going to be there. So, you know, it was like the whole deal, like the basics of striper fishing, getting the mackerel, whatever. And I talked about getting mackerel. And then I, one of my slides says, and if all else fails in the picture, it's your boat and Pete's boat. I go, just find these guys. As a matter of fact, just go for them first. <laughs> but that was like 14 boats ago for Pete. So yeah. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to keep track. I think that one's, is that one still in the river? The sport craft? Yeah, I think it is. That was the sport craft. I believe it is. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And the Obsessed is still in the river, too, the, yep, uh, the it is. Seahawk. I yep. love that boat. That yep. was a cool little boat he had. Yep. For sure. But I, I just, it's kind of funny, too. It's, it, somebody who's given, like, their first real seminar, uh, and then I got guys like you, Pete, 
smelly Bob and the, the thing. I'm like, oh god, they're just gonna tell me I'm full of shit. That's all. That's all. Just, when I get off here, they're gonna roll their eyes and just tell me I'm so full of shit. That's all. I was well, the beauty about. of it was we didn't even have to heckle you. We just sat there and smiled. <laughs> that's enough. That's great. Oh, that's awesome. It's you, a form of support. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that's another thing. Speaking of form of support, it's so funny. Like. I talked to guys around my age when they first started out down the coast, and they told me when you know when they started chartering, there was a lot of the old timers didn't really take too care of them. You know what I mean? There, there was always kind of issues. And these are kids who were a are good fishermen, good guys, and and you and Pete and I can't tell you guys enough. You know when I first started going through this, and huge help, huge help, and I try to pass that on too to some of the younger guys that are just getting started out the last couple of years, you know, but, you know, working with you two and being around you guys all the time and you guys taking the time to just kind of show me the little tricks and tips of the trade and uh, God, it shortens that learning curve so much and always appreciated. Hey, we're just, we're just trying to all get out there and have fun and you right. know, without, uh, without this, can we get all along, I'll get along part. Uh, we, you know, we can all be very, very good most of the time. Mm-hmm. And there are days when we absolutely are horrible. Yeah. And on that day, we need somebody else's help. Mm-hmm. And if you've done it enough times, you realize that when you need that help, you really need that help. Yep. So it's, it's good to have some people out there who are willing to talk to you. Guys, when you're going out there 100, 200 times a year like some of the guys around here do... You're not going to be good 200 times a year, you know, and it pays to play well in the sandbox. It does. Because uh, you throw someone a bone here and there, they throw it to you here and there, and nobody's going to be that good. I'm telling you right now, I don't care who you are. Uh, having a network of people that you trust, I know what they're doing, and we willfully share information. And I'm not saying they got to be anything super specific. You know, I might call Scott and be like, hey, uh, how, how'd you do up front today? You know, all right, I did all right down the flats. I might go upriver tomorrow or maybe, you know, up, up in front of Salisbury or something. Just to kind of get a lay of the land and see how things are going. You know, I got Dan right now as my secret squirrel, which is really nice. <laughs> Mr. No, no clock, no customers. Yeah, well, the thing is, not being on the clock, it's nice because I can go out there and I can try new things. I can do, you know, if I'm not successful, it doesn't matter. I just want to be on the water. <clears throat> so... You know, being able to try new things, try new spots, be in different places, absolutely. Dan's in a, you're in a great stage for somebody with their first year with the boat because you always grew up on the water fishing, whether it was like me and my family or friends of yours that have boats. And yeah, man, for the longest time, I was down with OPB. Yeah, other people's other boats. Other people's boats. <laughs> <laughs> so he's actually had a lot of the skills and the, the lingo and the things that we do and we talk about. So when he's able to go on his boat and now put it in his, now he can put his little spin on it and try his little thing. So it's... um. It's a good situation, man. It's a good situation. And it, all it does is make everybody better. It makes everybody... And that's the thing. The more we work together and people around here are catching fish and having fun, people see that on a different level now. They see, oh, man, shit. Uh, Plum Island. A lot of good fishing up there. You know? Look at... You know who does a really great job of that? Is the my buddies down in Rhode Island with the Tatog. Mm-hmm. I mean, they... I never really... I mean, I knew they were there. I used to go to Long Island and fish for Tatog with my buddy from college. But... I uh, never heard of Rhode Island or anything like it. And then um, a bunch of guys who were good friends, they did a really nice job finding the tog. And what they do is they protect it. Um, I forget, I don't know what the size limits are, but anything over like eight or nine pounds, especially uh, females, they throw back. Mm-hmm. They throw back. And they are on you mm-hmm. if you don't throw it back. Yep. But they all work together. They're all good friends. 
Um, I'm not saying they tell each other spots or anything like that, but they communicate and they build it up as like this great fun fishery. And I started fishing there probably about five years ago. I tried to make a trip down in October to fish my buddy Greg. And uh, the amount of boats that have multiplied though down there, you know, before you'd see like, I don't know, 10, 15 boats. Now I see buddies of mine. I'll be out there with Greg and I'll see two of my friends, one from Maine, one from New Hampshire, trailing their boats down to go togging. But it gives them business. It brings them the fishery. It gets them the new technology, new lures, things to try. And, And I think all of their businesses are absolutely booming right now good and it's good for them and it's really because i think they all just kind of did it together promoted it were, were positive about it and um yeah they got a good little fishery down there and it's it's really popular it's nice. really popular you'll get a kick out of this i don't know if i told you this but i was down there one day and we're talking and i'm looking on the fish finder and you know, I don't really know what's down there. I'm like, hey, Greg, is that sand eels on your screen? And he goes, yeah, I think so. So I'm like, yeah, I see some swirls. I thought they were like little blue fish, right? So I put on a deadly dick. Boom, catch a blue fish, right? See him again, cast it out. Catch a keeper striper, right? I see the marks on the bottom coming up. I drop it down. I caught a nice sea bass. I think it was probably my biggest sea bass I ever caught. Nothing nice. huge. Drop it down again. I got a nine and a half pound tog on this jig. Which uh, I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is four casts in a row. Drop it down again, and I caught a cod. Oh my. <laughs> I had five casts in the same spot, spot locked. Caught a cod, a blackfish, uh, a tog, a uh, cod, a tog, uh, a black sea bass, a bluefish, and a striper. That's amazing. I was like, this is the coolest thing I think I've ever done in the fishing world. Yes. It's, it's a neat little area. Probably is the coolest thing you've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> no, the coolest thing I've ever done was losing that poor beagle last week. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Oh, Scott, you would not have been, you would not would have been impressed with what happened. So we're going haddock fishing and I'm texting the group the night before. I go, hey, I'm going to shock rod ready. As I'm looking at mine, I'm just like, uh, I know somebody's going ready. And Parker goes, yeah, I do. I'm like, oh, great. I forgot that Parker was going on his boat, not on mine. Yeah. So whatever. We always bring one. We throw it out there. Nothing ever really happens. So we're haddock fishing. We have like one more to get out, one more haddock to get our limit. Then we're headed in. I'm reeling it up my haddock. All of a sudden, the rod just bends over, and I just look over. I go, "Oh God damn it!" <laughs> we have video of it. We fought it for six minutes, but it's just me sitting there as lines ripping off. And, yeah. And then it ended up breaking us off. But that's my white whale, man. That damn poor beagle. I'm like over six when they grab my haddock. <laughs> I've not gotten one on the shark rod. <laughs> that's funny. I want to try eating one too because that thresher we got a couple of years ago was absolutely delicious. So um, I finally got three poor beagles in one day last year, about two years ago. Wow. Yeah. Did you catch any small ones inside last year? Um, No, I've seen them. I saw them swirl around. Um, I went tuna fishing in the mud all day out front, and I'm pretty sure we we had, I don't know if it was small or big, but we did have a bite off, and it was a clean cut, so it was some sort of sharky. Actually, that same day, we did have a tuna hookup. We ran for like 10 seconds and then spit the hook. Joe Letourneau was in the, um, um, what the hell's name of his boat? The Lady Rebecca. Mm -hmm. He was right behind us. Both our rods literally bent over at the same time, and he ended up getting his. It was a nice like Mm 93-incher. And then we set back up. And then all of a sudden, a rod goes off. Like a, the balloon goes down, boom, bending over. I'm like, hmm, I don't think this is a tuna. It's either a short tuna. And then I saw the flash underneath. I'm like, oh, that looks like a little poor beagle, like a 54, 55 inch poor beagle. Then the other rod goes off. I'm like, all right, I think they kind of work together. We might have two small poor beagles here. Scott, this, it, was, it was a striper. 
It was a striper. It was huge. I didn't measure it because it was kind of like craziness on the deck at that point with tuna rods going off, you know. But we pulled it on the boat, and I wanted to get it back in the water as fast as possible. And we had horrible pictures of it. But we were we weren't in we weren't in striper land. Oh yeah, we were tuna fishing. Uh, but oh my god, it must have been 52, 53 inches. Sweet. The other one was like forty, but you know you're fighting them on the on the tackle. But it was just nuts, nice. just the way that it like bent. And I I thought it was a poor beagle from seeing it shimmer underneath. I wasn't. I've caught stripers out there before, but that thing was a pig, <laughs> an absolute pig. You know, it was like three years ago, and then some two years ago, we were catching. I was catching. Three, four, five poor beagle sharks mackerel fishing. I remember that. I remember you telling me that. And it was like, you know, I would start to throw out a rod just to catch one, hoping that if I stung them, they'd go away. Yeah. And I realized after a while that that wasn't going to happen, so I would just simply have to move. But there were so many juvenile poor beagles around. Yeah. You know, which were a whole lot of fun on, a, on an ultralight rod, but, you know, I mean... Really should probably end up, shouldn't have been fishing for him. Didn't you hook a mako once while mackerel fishing? I did. I did. I, I hooked a mako on just where was I? I was just off of Hampton Shoal Ledge. I mean, just yeah. Um, and uh, it came up into my slick, and and I looked at it, and it was just this hyper fish, and it was blue. And I went, okay, great. It's not a blue shark because it's you know it's the fins aren't. Mm-hmm. So then I figured, well, it's, it's you know it's got to be a poor beagle, and you know it went away, and I th- threw a whole mackerel out there, and it came back, and I figured, no, there's no spot that, you know, well, you know that the poor beagles are called facos because they have that white spot behind the dorsal. I didn't see the spot. Yeah. So real quick, uh, for those who don't know, poor beagles nicknames are facos because they're kind of shaped. They kind of get a a face that looks like a mako, kind of a body shape. They're a little bit stockier than a mako, but the way you can differentiate between the two is on the back side of the dorsal fin of a poor beagle, there's a white spot. Yeah. So, yeah, so you did not see did the Did not spot. see that. So then all of a sudden, I catch this fish, and it comes right up to the boat, right up to the side of the boat, and I look at that, and I went, I'm not touching this. <laughs> <laughs> that even went, and it took off, and it went about... 20 yards and went up in the air and then went further and went up in the air and then went out to sea and went up into the air and I was running out of line and I had a, a, a drift bag Yeah. so oh, I had no. to put it in the rod holder and I ran up front and then the, the hook came out but I mean it was awesome watching this thing go up in the air I mean <laughs> I think it's awesome just watching them swim around the boat man oh yeah and just swimming around the boat they were I mean it was, cool. it was, I was two and a half miles offshore yeah yeah it's nuts and I had one a couple of years ago um, fishing on Plum Island. The day before, we actually had a striper and a great white came and ate it in like four feet of water. So I'm like, all right, things are a little sharky. I'll yeah. bring my 50 wide out and meet them tomorrow, the next couple of days. Not like I'm going to hook a great white, but yeah, maybe yeah. there's something else yeah. around. So this was a time we were trolling like in like four feet of water off the beach. And I look behind my boat, and I see my pogey just kick off and go into the sand. I'm like, ooh, something's chasing that. Then I see the fin. I'm like, oh, my God, it's that damn great white again. And I'm like, oh, that's not a white. I'm like, is that a, is that a mako? It was like a six-foot, seven-foot mako. And it came right up, ate the ate the, uh, ate the pogey, and then just went whoop, right out. We actually fought him for like 12 minutes, I think it was. He took us about a half mile offshore chasing it around. But um, I think Nat Moody ended up getting him a couple of weeks ago on a fly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But we ended up losing it. We were on bass tackle. We get back on the troll about an hour later. Oh, funny thing too, that Mako and that Great White, literally the same waypoint. The same waypoint. So we get back on the troll about an hour later. I look off to the side. I'm like, are you going to be kidding me? About 30 feet from my boat, it's just a fin going across. And it was, I don't know if it was the same one or another Mako. We had the 50 wide. We were throwing the, and he just wanted nothing to do with it, of course, at that point. And the next day, I actually had a shock charter with a guy who's come out me a lot and we're like oh for two for makos with him he's gotten lucky enough to hook two but unlucky enough that we've had some unfortunate events happen um so i'm like listen just shut up (laughs) just come on the boat don't say anything i'm gonna try something just just trust me he's like all right so we go we get pogies and he goes why are we going like down the beach i'm like i told you not to talk (laughs) because i didn't want to tell him but uh, it's, and it's crazy. Going back to the wind, what happened was the water was about 66 degrees the day before. And then overnight, we had a strong westerly wind. And when I got down to where we were, the water temp was like 59, 60. I'm like, yep, yeah, that thing's gone. gone. So we did that for like 10 minutes. I'm like, yeah, that's not going to happen. So we went back out and had a great day sharking otherwise for a bunch of blues. So Well, Paul Murray, Paul, Murray, Paul Murray hooked up to a white shark a couple of times two years ago. Yeah, yeah. He had he has video of it. Yeah, it's it's wild. The one that hit that one that hit ours. We were trolling a trolling caught a bass. Thing was probably about ten feet for the boat. You know, I'm getting ready to go leader it and stuff. And then I didn't even see the shark. All of a sudden, it just came off. You know, we were heading south, so my port side was facing the ocean, and I'm on that side of the boat, and I just see this big thing of gray just come right by, and like we all got wet. Everyone was like, "Oh my God, what just happened?" Uh, Parker's fought one for a little bit a few weeks before. I saw one in the mouth last year, and we were trolling bluefish on the South Jetty. And my clients, who actually got coming out Saturday, haddock fishing too, great guys, live on the island, they come with me a bunch of times, good fishermen, they know what the hell's up, they've been doing it their whole lives. And as we're trolling for bluefish in the mouth, every time we got past the tip of the jetties, you know, the little swirls on the south side there, they go, hey, do you see that? There's something really big over there. I'm like, what? I'm like, a seal? Like, no, I don't know. It was just something. And they kept saying it. And I was kind of getting like frustrated A, that I couldn't see it, or B, like, all right, are they finally like messing with me or something like that? So we go back, we do our troll, and, um, and the bluefish were kind of hanging like a little little dip right inside the, the inside of the jetties. And like every time we made that pass, we'd get a double or something and then come back and reset. And as we're going to that little spot, I go, get ready, guys. I look back, and it was like almost out of the movies. This big gray fin just comes swooping right by the back of the boat. I'm like, oh, my God. And Charlie Crocker just restarted his his troll. I go, Charlie, did you see that? He goes, what, what? I go, I, I think there was a great white that just went right in front of your boat. And he goes, oh, God. He goes, I think I just hooked it. He goes, yep, my line is dumping right now. <laughs> <laughs> but what I couldn't believe is that the bluefish were still hitting. We kept yeah. making the troll, and they yeah. just didn't care. They were getting walloped by this thing, and hey, whatever. Yeah. That Rapala looks better than their life, apparently. Yeah, so, <laughs> that's funny. you got to stop hitting the table. Uh, do you do, did you do a lot in the fall this year? Um... I no, I didn't have a ton of fish, but I did catch fish. Yeah, but did you go a lot? I know you, you and Pete kind of fish a little bit more in September, I, and October than yeah, I get a chance to. Yeah, I fish. I get I get my hundred days in, whether I want to or not. No, <laughs> uh, no I, I I fish it. Uh, it's it's for for all of us. The weather predict you know determines the end of the season. Correct. Right? Not so much the fish. Yeah. You know? uh, there's 
you know, and, 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 and the other thing is I have, I have this other ground rule in this. If I don't have my boat put away by October 15th, I have to live in it. And, and it gets really cold. <laughs> is that your rule or Sandy's rule? That's my wife's rule. <laughs> <laughs> because my real job is calling me by then, so I have, yeah. to, I have to go back to work. So I, I think the docks usually come out around the 15th or yeah. so. Yeah, and yeah, that's usually when I pull the boat. But I'm just like, oh, I'm going to keep on the trailer for a few weeks in case I want a trailer to Gloucester or the Cape. And I never do. It I never It do. doesn't ever seem to work out because the wind starts blowing oh, and, and the storms weird. keep coming and it just it Yeah, it crazy. is. And it's a cold wind, too. Because oh, you're like, yeah, yeah it's, you're right there in fall. It's so funny. It's some, I did some of the best fishing ever in October, though. It was awesome because like, you're the only one out there. No one's there. Yeah. Feeds are crazy. There's like mixes of bluefish and stripers, and like, but you didn't know what you were catching. It was it was awesome. And if you're not afraid to be out there by yourself and figure it out on your own, it's 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 a great thing. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it's fun to be. Out but there. that wind, oh, that wind is rough. It, it's so funny though. If we had those conditions now, we'd be like, oh yeah, let's go fishing. It's I know, nice. yeah, your but, body, you, know, <laughs> you get acclimated to the warm weather, and yeah, now it's actually. I don't know. Last year, I got acclimated to any warm weather. Man, I was soaked the whole summer. I was actually thinking about that the other day. Like the last day that I was out there, the it was probably the wind was probably like fourteen knots, and it was probably the air temperature was probably around fifty five degrees. Yeah. And I was freezing, and it's like now it's like I would be in a t-shirt out there right now. We were in a t-shirt, hat <laughs> yeah. fishing like that exact yeah, same exactly. condition, <laughs> except well, it was forty-five yeah. degrees. Well, I, I I I don't know if we talked about it since we've been doing the podcast or not, but but, but Pete and I did go out in his one of his little boats the other day, and he says, "Yeah, let's go." He says, "And and, and it's like fifty-five degrees out, Scott." He says, "This is great." He says. Because last year, our last trip out, I took a picture of the temperature on my radio in my truck. It was 39 degrees. Mm-hmm. And we went out and we drove, we drove down to uh, past the rocks, about halfway down the river, took one or two casts, looked at each other, went, yeah, this is stupid. And we mm-hmm. turned around and we went back. <laughs> well, what, that's one of the things that... The one thing I don't like about schoolie fishing, if that wind's cranking, it just sucks. Like, you can't cast. It's cold. You got to control the boat. You can't really fish. And last year, thank God, we found a bunch of mackerel offshore before they came in where we could fish them consistently because my early season trips that I'm normally casting lures for schoolies and things like that, every day was blowing 20. Yeah. And I had some mackerel that I took really good care of. I... You know, I, I put them on ice and brined them, you know, kept them in the cooler for like a day or two, just getting nice and nice and cold. Yep. Then I take them out, I pat them really dry, all of them dry. This is a process. <laughs> and just sprinkle a little salt and baking powder on them and shrink wrap them. And uh, those baits held really, really good. And when it was too windy out, instead of casting lunar for schoolies, we just started chunking. Yep. We were using light freshwater rods and chunking and still catching our, you know, 30, 40 fish, having some fun. I mean, you're not casting into them, but, you you know, it's no fun casting into the wind when it's blowing 20 with three-ounce jig heads and yep. soft plastics. Like, it's just not productive. Yep. You're going to be blown everywhere. And that's where something like spot lock comes in really, really great. I love it. Yeah, you love it. When I, when I first got it, you, you came aboard with it, and I was like, yes. So how do you do you find it does a lot to put more fish in the boat or just in general make your life a whole lot easier? It makes my life easier. And, uh, well, I use it mackerel fishing. Huge. Yeah. Huge thing. Huge. I used mine a ton last yeah. year. Um, as far as, uh, and I use it, it's interesting. I'll use it. I, I fish in the parker a lot. Yeah. 
and there's a, an odd crosswind there. And my phone will stop ringing in a minute. Sorry. <laughs> okay, I was like, whose phone yeah. is that? Uh, but I found that there are days when I will run my trolling motor at a 45 degree angle and I can actually control my drift so that I can keep my boat sideways so that all of my clients can fish comfortably and not have five people in the back of the boat. That's one of the hardest things about the parker. When you get that crosswind and that boat wants to spin around when you're trying to drift, the parker is a challenging place for a person driving the boat to keep the lines in order. And I haven't done so much in the parker, but I do the same thing when I'm fishing like uh, upriver in the channel. If there's not a lot of boats around, like a weekday or, you know, a late night afternoon where there's not a lot of boats, just because I can take it up and move if I have to. You know, if there's a lot of boats, like on a weekend, I'm probably not using my trolling motor for my drift. You know, I'll be more in power for that. And I also, and I know a lot of people have been getting trolling motors lately. I've definitely been, I've seen like three or four people have texted me this year. They got some. And I just hope if you have a trolling motor, though. You're being respectful of the people around you. I mean, I've never seen you in the way with spot locking people's drifts. I purposely try not to do it and get away from anyone if I'm doing it that way. And just as long as everybody's playing nice in the sandbox and using this thing appropriately and not, you know, people are drifting on Joppa, don't spot lock in the middle of everyone's drift or upriver. People do it quite a bit. They'll spot lock and it just kind of gets in the way, you know and I honestly don't like spot locking in areas where I can drift. I rather, you know, I want to be in a specific kind of spot. I want to, you know, I want to cover as much ground as possible. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I spot lock off the beach if I can. Yeah. That's that's where it's worth its weight and gold. Yeah. Because you know, if, oh, if, especially if, if yeah. you back it in until your skeg is touching the sand and 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 the wind is blowing it all off the beach. Yeah. You got five minutes in a productive area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were numerous times, like on the, the salt jetty in the beach, like in that corner, bait will get pinned up in there and stripers yeah. will be feeding. And yeah. you're pretty close to the breakers and constantly having to back the boat out of it. But if you spot lock and you can stay there, you can just you can cast all day into yeah. that, which is awesome. I definitely know when I'm slow trolling on the beach and shallow, I am like 99% of the time using my trolling motor as opposed to my regular motor. And the reason being, if I'm fishing shallow and I got the waves crashing on me, and I got the wind, especially if it's a westerly or an easily pushing me off or pushing me in. When you're driving with your regular motor, your outboard, the wind and everything's controlling your bow. And it's pushing your bow and you're zigzagging, lines are getting tangled, you know, it's a pain in the ass. And I'm like, you know what? I got this trolling motor. Let's try this thing. And because it's pulling you from the bow, yep. your bow's staying straight. You can autopilot it. So that's huge. So I just plop that thing down. I take a look at my spread and, yep. you know, see what the fish are telling me to yep. do. Yep. And by not controlling your boat and worrying about that, now you can start looking at your lines. How's your presentation? Should I put this back? Put this in? Put this up? Put this down? And you can go through all those things and make notes. Okay, um, all right, that that stupid stick over there. All right, I caught a fish right there, right? That stick. And don't lie, like we all do that, right? I was laughing with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got so many, I got so many stupid points on my fish finder right now, just from times like when we were following a school of pogies or something like that, or I'd be trolling and mock something. And I, uh, now I just got a thousand points down Plum Island. I got to clean it up. But. You know, I still drive down and be like, all right, there's the sign, you know, or, oh, there's there's the blue house. That's where I'm going to stop at. There's that one that's a little bit higher than everything else. And oh, there's yeah. that weird sandbar that I'm familiar with. And <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, is that the weird sandbar or is it that one? I'm and like, then, no, it's that one. There was, there was a, a, a particular spot 
that we used a couple of years called go called the trash pile. And it literally was. It was it was a cut in the dunes mm-hmm. and a bunch of floats and trash got collected in there on a high tide. Yeah. So that became a designated spot, the trash pile. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I didn't know that one. <laughs> I remember a few years ago, remember there was that boat that flipped over like halfway down the island? Yeah. And the fishing was incredible by this boat. Everybody was down there, right? I didn't even put it in my fish fryer. I just went to the boat. Yeah. And then all of a sudden one day the boat's gone. And on the radio, hey, hey, did you did you mock what that boat was? <laughs> the one that was on land? I'm like, uh, no. Oh, I think it was right around here. Yeah, yeah, I forgot the name of that. That was that was actually a sailing fishing boat. Yeah. And they were lost in the fog for three days. Three days? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. That's the story I read. Could be wrong, but that's what I read. It was there for a while. And uh well it's well it's it, uh, is this? Are you talking? Uh, uh, I'm not talking about the shipwreck. Okay, this is a wreck boat. I'm yeah, talking about the actual boat that okay. was like way up yeah. in the sand. Like yeah. somebody okay, anchored yeah, up. I remember that. All right. Remember that yeah. now? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was a pretty good bike going on there for a little bit. And I yeah. remember, I think it was either Matt Abel or Charlie. Were like, hey, uh, where'd the boat go? I go, dude. I don't know. I thought it was like around here. He goes, I'll go a little more south. Maybe I can see. I'm like, I think they moved it, Matt. <laughs> I apologize. Wrong boat. Yeah. <laughs> But there was, I didn't hear, so that one that you were talking about, you're talking about the actual shipwreck? Yeah, you could see the bones at low tide, and, uh, but they had, they were lost in the fog for three days, and then they finally, you know, got bumped into shore, and they got stranded. No kidding. That's, that's how it got there. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, back before power engines, and yeah, went to Joe's Playland and played some arcades. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Landed at the polio camp. Yeah. 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 Then, uh, um. Yeah, man, I just know. I know this time of year, this is my favorite time of year to talk to you because you get just as giddy about the schooly stuff as, as I Absolutely. do. Absolutely. And it's just like, I know you're out there, not going for the first one, but trying to be Pete, <laughs> which is important. <laughs> Let's not lie. <laughs> and it's terrible, you know. And just for the record, Pete is one of my very best friends. But, <laughs> I but he's want... never beaten him in the striper challenge. No. <laughs> yes, he has. He beat me last year in my boat. Oh, that doesn't count. You're on his, your boat. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I think he, I think he you one time you were in Florida. He was on my boat. He yeah. goes, yes, yes. He was so excited, dude. And I'm just like, Pete, you're my boat. <laughs> I caught it. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, man, it's that time of year. We all, we're all finally migrating back to Newburyport on a more regular basis. So we're seeing each other around. We saw you at the captain's meeting last week, which was a good one. Learned a lot of stuff yep. from that lady that yep. came. It was good to see Very the crew. Very informative, yeah. Yeah, she, she did a great job. Yep. She did a great job. So um, are you guys still taking Are we still taking association members? No. No, not so there's not, yeah, not so much right now. Okay, so uh, any any uh, local charter captains, well, actually, I guess anybody in northern New England, um, check out the Northeast Charter Boat Captains Association. Scott is currently the sec- uh, treasurer right at the actually, moment. Looking no, for a new one? I have no official title right now. <laughs> I am Peter Murray's uh, helper assistant. So. Yes. Uh, it's a good little program. You get some a lot of you get to meet the guys around here. For me, as a young guy, when I first started off, it was uh, a really great time. I learned a lot of things, met a lot of great people who are in the industry, and the membership's been growing. So, Northeast Charter Boat Captains Association for anybody who's a local charter captain might be something you want to get involved in, get to know some of the guys around here on a little bit more of a personal level. And if anybody wants to take a trip out with Scott, summerjobcharters.com. Yes. Summerjobcharters.com does a great job. You're going to go out there. You'll, you'll definitely find bait, and then you'll go crush some fish. Great guy. Loves to teach. Great boat. 
And Scott, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming out, Scott. All right. Appreciate thank you, it. brother.